For the next several weeks, we are embarking on a journey called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Uh, it's profoundly uh, and fundamentally shaped by a guy named Peter Scazzaro who wrote a number of books. He's a pastor out in New York under that name, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Just curious, how many of you guys have read or are familiar with this material? Raise your hands. Okay, handful of us. Here is um, the fundamental truth that we will come around for the next several weeks. And if you put it up on the screen, please. It, it, is, it is this truth. Emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to become spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Emotional health, and and I'll talk more about that. Emotional health, the way that we want to define it is to be self-aware. So the uh, opposite of someone who's emotionally healthy is someone who is self-deceived, someone who is unaware. Emotional health. Self-aware and ability to love well. Love well. And spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And I'm making some huge assumptions here as we begin this journey. And that is this. I am assuming that vast majority of us want to grow spiritually. Is that an okay assumption? Yes? Okay. Because many of you could be doing many other things at this hour. And yet you choose to get up early in the morning and you choose to come on Sundays. You choose to be in community. And I'm guessing that it's because you want to grow spiritually, that that's important for you. But what we need to come around is this maybe difficult truth, and that is this, that what if spiritual maturity was intimately tied to a dimension of discipleship that many of us just were not taught, or many of us were just not aware of? What if growing spiritually and becoming spiritually mature had a dimension in discipleship that fled out some of us, many of us were taught to ignore it or just consider not important in the life of the church and communities we grew up in? We go to the words of Jesus when he says in Matthew 22 verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The essential core of what it means to be a Christian. The essential core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that you love God and that you love others well. That's the essential core. And I find it interesting that Jesus says, loving the Lord your God and others involves all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. The problem, of course, is that many of us grew up in churches where if, as if we read that verse, it says, love the Lord your God with all of your mind. Full stop. We love theology. We love learning. 
We love learning. We love sermons. We love books. We love Bible studies. And somehow we come to equate spiritual maturity with Bible knowledge. And we all know even experientially that Bible knowledge doesn't necessarily equate to spiritual maturity. Can I get an amen? Some of the most spiritually mature people, I'm sorry, some of the most spiritually immature people or some of the most emotionally unhealthy people are some of the most biblically knowledgeable people that are out there. You've met them, I've met them. And by the way, it completely throws non-Christians off because they just assume if God is love, how can those who claim to know God best love least? We all know that just because you know a lot about the Bible doesn't mean that you're spiritually mature, nor are you even emotionally healthy. Jesus says, love the Lord your God, not just with all of your mind, but all of your soul, all of your heart, which the Hebrews call the seat of our emotions. The end goal of Christian living is to love well. Look, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. I could go, this is an entire sermon in itself, but we don't have time. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly love the children, that's your identity, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The goal of the Christian life is to become more like Jesus. And the essence of what it means to become more like Jesus entails loving well. Paul goes on in Ephesians 5, talks about spiritual fruit spiritual fruit. The core and essence of spiritual fruit that entails spiritual maturity is supernatural love working in and through us. You can't be spiritually mature if you do not love well, but you can't love well if you're not emotionally healthy. Are you with me so far? I need you to participate this morning. Because I'm going to just real quickly, real quickly, because I don't have time. We've got to cover so much ground. I'm going to cover 10 symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality or emotionally unhealthy person or emotional immaturity. And as I go through these things, let's all, let's all, let's all, we do, this is a new community. We all, we all are in the same page together. So if any of these are like issues to you, say a little, uh-huh, or yeah, or raise your hand, or say that again, whatever, all right? Just, just to make sure we're all not alone. Here are symptoms. In case anyone's sitting here going, ah, so I guess I don't show up for eight weeks because I am a completely emotionally healthy person. Thank you very much. Which, by the way, is the telltale sign that you are not an emotionally healthy person. First symptom is when we use God to run from God. First symptom, telltale sign of emotional immaturity and healthiness when you use God. Is is when, uh, and I've done this, you've done this, we create a lot of God activity so that we could ignore difficult areas of our lives. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, should I just move on? Well, you and I use God to love God when I do God's work to satisfy me and not him. You and I use God to run from God when I do things in his name that he never asked me to do. You and I use God to run from God when my prayers are all about doing my will and not surrendering our will to his. 
Second symptom of how we use God to run from God is when we ignore the emotions of anger, sadness, and fear. Second symptom is when we use, ignore the emotions of anger, sadness, and fear. I've met so many Christians over the years, church family, who believe, who actually believe that anger, sadness, and fear are sins to be avoided. That there's something wrong with our spiritual lives if we sense anger, sadness, and fear. So you know what's happened in the church because we think there's sins to be avoided or is there something wrong with the spiritual if we feel these emotions. We superficially put on a veneer and we do the whole, well, praise the Lord. Everything is good. Some of us were actually even taught that feelings are unreliable and can't be trusted. Anybody? Anybody? Now let me be very, very clear. Very, very clear for the next 30 seconds so that you don't come back to me and go, but what about? We can fall into the trap of enthroning our emotions, letting emotions run our lives. Let me just say that. Our culture says, just follow your heart. Tell, tell symptom. Just follow your heart. And enthroning our emotions can be unhealthy because emotions, though given to us by God, like anything else, is tainted with sin. Emotions, I like to say, are great servants, but horrible masters. There is a sense in which you can let your emotional layer rule over your life and go as a dictate. Having said that, do y'all hear me? Okay, okay. Having said that, there's a world of difference between enthroning our emotions and ignoring our emotions. Paying attention to our emotions, listening to our emotions, which are often the heart siren. Doop, 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 telling us something's going on. All my emotions. All my emotions, not all of them might be right or good, but all my emotions are true. Paying attention. But a biblical argument for why ignoring emotions of sadness, fear, and anger, two things real quick. Do you realize we're made in the image of God? And do you realize being made in the image of God creates, it causes a sense in which there are various dimensions. Being made in the image of God means that we have physical dimensions. Being made in the image of God means we have an intellectual dimension, social dimension, relational dimensions. But how is it that we go, Genesis 127, made in the image of God, and we forget that we are also have what? An emotional dimension. So when we ignore these emotions, we are literally ignoring an entire dimension of God that's created in his image. And when we do that, the consequences are devastating for our relationship with God, each other, and even ourselves. Here's what uh, Peter Scazzaro, uh, it's a long quote, so hang on there with me. Here's what he says. When we do not process before God the very feelings that make us human, such as fear, sadness, or anger, we leak. We got some leaking people here this morning. Our churches are filled with leaking Christians who have not treated their emotions as a discipleship issue. Grieving is not possible without paying attention to our anger and sadness. Most people who fill churches are nice and respectable. Few explode in anger, at least in public. The majority, like me, stuff these difficult feelings, 
trusting that God will honor our noble efforts. The result is that we leak through in soft ways such as passive-aggressive behavior. Anybody? 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 Oh? Showing up late. Sarcastic remarks. A nasty tone of voice. Silent treatment. My favorite weapon of choice. Are you leaking? Hey, you might, you might sit there and go, no. I, it's, here's the second biblical reason, right? You realize the most emotionally healthy person that's ever lived on the face of the earth also happened to be the most spiritually mature person who ever lived on the face of the earth. And his name is Jesus. Do you realize that he was not only in tune with his emotions, but he was unafraid to express it? Do you ever read the Gospels carefully? You don't see a picture of an emotionally frozen Savior. Here's just some examples. We don't have time to go over them. Here's just some examples of Jesus. Check this out. Mark 3, 5. He looked around at them with anger. So if you don't think anger is a, a biblical emotion that you need to wrestle with, I don't know what you do about that with Jesus. Grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand and he heals him. John eleven thirty three. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then, of course, John eleven thirty five. he... This is a real quick side story, 30 seconds. I go to Columbia just about every year, and I have to go through to Miami. This was like two years ago. I was coming back from Miami to Columbia, and they have uh, officers that, that, you know, check people, right, to, you know, because there's a lot of drugs coming in and out and stuff like that. And here I am coming back from my missions trip, right, with my bag and my leather jacket. Maybe that's what did it, you know, and I'm just walking, and the officer goes, excuse me, excuse me. Me? Yeah, you. Where are you coming from? Columbia, sir. What do you do for a living? I'm a minister. <laughs> yeah, right. No, really. What do you do for a living? I said, I'm a minister. I'm a pastor. I did missions work. Really? All right. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? I was like, come on. Give me a harder one. Jesus wept. Okay, all right, fine. You can go. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Really? That's how, that's how you gauge that's how, you, that's how you gauge major drug dealers. Good Lord, man. No wonder we got a drug problem in this country. Jesus wept. Wow. Mark 936. Sorry about that. There was a little, I don't know why I did that. No, Mark 930. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And in case you're thinking, wow, Jesus was a dour personality. He felt deep sadness. There's also tons of passages like this. Luke 10, 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. You know what I think, Jesus? Jesus had, I think, one of those just belly out laugh. Just one of those laughters that was infectious. I think Jesus felt his emotions and all of it deeply. And was unafraid. To express it. So what do you do? If you're a Christian that says ignore emotions. When you see your Savior. All right. Third, 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 third symptom. We got to move on. Uh, we die to the wrong things. Jesus did say, 
Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. But here's what happens when we misapply that verse. It results in a narrow, faulty theology that says the more miserable you are, the more you suffer, the more God loves you. I came from that school of thought. Anybody else? For years. It's like, dang, God hit me. Hit me again, Lord. Why? Because the more you suffered the more God loved you. Here's the thing. We are called in Scripture to die to the wrong things of us. Detachment, arrogance, insecurity. Things things about us that we know are unhealthy. But there's no way in the Bible that says we are to die to the good things that God gives to us as a gift. We're not called to die to joy. We're not called to die to laughter, friendship, art, music, nature. Those are given to us by God as gifts. Are you sitting here this morning going, my theology says the more I suffer, the more I the more God loves me. Are you dying to all the wrong things? We got to move on. Fourth, fourth symptom. Deny the past impact on the present. Oh, oh. And again, we misuse scripture. Yes, when we come to faith in Christ, this is an amazing thing. In the dramatic language of the Bible, we are born again. Paul says we in Christ, we are a new creation. We're given a new name, a new identity, a new life, a new eternity, a new future. But while we are free from ultimate control and consequences of our past, please listen. Growing or maturing in Christ sometimes demands that we go back in order to break free from unhealthy and destructive patterns that's fundamentally shaped who we are today. The goal is to go forward, but you got to get rid of the baggage first. In three weeks, we're going to talk about the impact of our family of origin and how that's, it's incredible as a pastor for 20-some years, how I talk to people. And Christians actually think that the families they grew up in have had no impact on who they are today. I'm like, what? (laughs) As someone said, Jesus Christ lives in your heart, but your grandpa lives in your bones. Are you ready for this journey? I know. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. See, see you're not saying that sarcastically, are you? No. You, do you real? When we start, that's why I prayed earlier. We're going to pray for something. When you see already, there's like some of you going, I, I can't wait to get out of here. Why, 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 why are we here? Because even as you think about your parents, already painful memories. Just I've been praying for you all week. And I'll continue to pray for you. Moving on. You divide your life into secular and sacred compartments. We've mastered the unhealthy and unbiblical separation between worship and work, Sunday and Monday. If I were to ask some of you, how's your spiritual life? You go, I go to church, Bible study, community groups. But if I go, do you realize your financial decisions are spiritual? Do you realize your recreational decisions are spiritual? Do you realize your work life is spiritual? Paul says, God is in all and through all. Next, we've got to move on. 
doing for God without being with God. I've been saying this for the last two weeks. You cannot give what you don't possess. Our activity for God could only properly flow from a life with God. When our doing for God is not anchored in the gospel, his unconditional love for us, and our identity becomes what other people think and what we do, it turns ugly and toxic real quick. Do you know why this sermon is so important for me? And I'm glad some of you are already kind of clapping. Because as much as you were into last Sunday when we talked about the mission of this church, the reason why I'm so passionate about this is because the way some of you are going right now, you are going to crash and burn. You're not going to last. I don't even need the gift of prophecy. The road that you're headed because you're doing for God is devoid of being with God. You are going to blow up your marriage, blow up your relationship, blow up your friendships. The reason why I am passionate about this is because we need you, followers and servants of Jesus, for the long haul. We need you for the long haul. I need you, we need you, the kingdom needs you for the next 20, 30, 40 years. It is not a badge of honor to go, I ran real hard for three years and I flamed out and I'm done. We need you for the long haul. And you are not going to last if you're doing for God if devoid of an interior life that's being nurtured. I gotta go spiritualize away conflict is the next one. Some of us grew up in families. Mm. I gotta move on. Cover over brokenness, weakness, and failure. Some of you pretending feels a lot safer, doesn't it, than honesty and vulnerability? You are an expert at image management. Here's, the, here's what you lose in the process. Here's what you lose. If you are not fully known, you can never be fully loved. You think people love you. They love parts of you. Parts of you that you let them see. The only way that anyone will get to fully love you is when you're fully known. And to be fully loved and fully known is the most amazing gift we can give each other. I got to move on because we got to cover a lot of ground. Next is living without limits. <laughs> oh, jeez. Can you tell this is painful for me to even preach? Living without limits. We're not God. We can't do it all. We can't serve everyone. Even Jesus didn't for crying out loud. Jesus didn't heal every person. He didn't raise every dead person. He didn't feed all the hungry. Living without limits. It's true that we're called to lay down ourselves, our lives for others. But you need a self to lay down first, child. You need a self to lay down first. There's one gift and only one gift that you have that no one else can give in this world. Do you know what that is? You. It's not selfish to do self-care.
Moving on. Lastly, judging other people's spiritual journey. Mother Teresa, I think, said this. If we judge people, you have no time to love them. We're so good at judging other people. It's subtle. It's subtle. How can a Christian do that? Shouldn't they get it by now? Um, how are we doing? Anybody like, check, 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 check. I am the most spiritually and emotionally healthy person on earth. I am God's gift. Anybody? 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 Okay, I didn't think so. All right. I'm sorry. I need to make, I need to make light on this. This is such a heavy topic. I'm going to show you a visual. I'm going to show you a visual, and you're going to see this every Sunday. It's an iceberg. Why do I show you that? The tip of the iceberg, the 10% of your life, it's what people observe. It's what people see. And unfortunately, that's where most of our discipleship is focused on. Church attendance, Bible study, not cursing, not doing the bad stuff. But it's the underneath 90% that nobody sees that we're going to get to for the next eight weeks. It's the underneath the iceberg that causes you to do what you do, that makes you behave the way you do when stresses, unexpected life curveballs, conflict arises. It's the unseen 90% of the iceberg that we're like, mm-mm, mm Here's the great news. Can I, can I give you some great news today? The amazing thing about Jesus is that he's not just concerned about who you are in front of people. He's actually more concerned about underneath the iceberg stuff. Is that good news? He is more concerned about that unseen stuff that you and I carry around with us. And he wants to bring transformation in that area. Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. There is hope. See, our mistakes, our past, our flaws, and that underneath the junk stuff that we carry, the gospel says those things may explain you, but they don't need to define you. Is that good news? Christ wants to go there, but here's the challenge. I need to talk this out. Here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. The amazing thing is, and I wish he didn't do this, but he does. He will not force or drag anyone to emotional hell. He will not. Just like Jesus will not force or drag anyone to love him and to worship him, he will not drag any one of us on this journey or journey for the rest of our lives to do this. You have to be willing to give Jesus access to that underneath stuff. He will not drag. I wish he did. I'm praying this week going, Jesus, drag them. Drag them. Force them. I do to my kids. Do it, Lord. And, and, and as loud as loud as can be, Jesus says, if they will not worship me, the rocks will cry out. If they will not willingly go to this journey. Three questions as we look at a very familiar text, and then I'm done. Three questions you need to ask yourself if this is for you. And I really hope that you do come back and bring someone else back. By the way, if you're sitting and you're going, somebody else needs to hear this, man. I can think of her. I can think of him. Dang, why is she not here today? That devil. 
Always keeping them away when they need to hear that sermon. You know who you are thinking like this. Don't do it. This is for who? John 5. Real quick, John 5. Cece, what do you think so far? Yeah? Is anybody feeling kind of queasy and, and kind of uneasy right now? Oh, that's good. Okay. John 5. All right, here we go. Oh, man, we got so much ground to cover. I think, okay, John 5. Three questions, remember. Jesus then went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Verse 5. The one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Real quick, real quick. By the way, archaeologists discovered where this place is. And there was a legend that said an angel would come down once in a while, and he would stir the water. And he would stir the water and say in the water. So if anyone was sick, and they jumped into this thing first that they would be healed. We don't know why the water was still. Maybe it was nature. Maybe it was, we don't know. But what we do know is that there were sick people all over the place just waiting until the thing stirred so they can go in. And this guy had been there for a year. And Jesus says in verse 6, when he saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a very long time, he asked him, say this with me, do you really to get Now, are you paying attention this morning? Are you with me? Does this sound like a strange question to you? On the surface, it seems like a strange question. So Jesus sees the guy. He comes to him. And the first thing he does is, do you want to be healed? And you're going, that's a stupid question. Of course he wants to be healed. He's been like this for years. Of course. Why would he say that? Except you got to remember that Jesus never said anything without intention. Why would Jesus ask this guy? And I thought a couple things. One, maybe, maybe he had lost hope. Does anybody know what it's like to struggle with something for years? And after a while you go, this is impossible. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, this is what it's going to be for years. Anybody? Anybody? You've been there? Oh, of course. You and I have been there. The paralysis of the body eventually goes to the paralysis of the will. And you go, nothing's going to happen. Maybe. Here's the other scenario though. You ready? Maybe this guy didn't want to get well. Maybe this guy was afraid of getting better. Does anybody in this room know what it's like to bemoan the fact that you're not well, but you're scared of getting well? Why? Because if you did get better, things will change. You will have to change. And the tragedy is, there are some of us that would rather stay stuck and actually get better. Because we don't want to face the changes around us and the changes in us that will inevitably come if we got better. For some of us, getting better means that you're going to have to take responsibility for your actions and you can't blame other people anymore. And blaming other people for some of us has worked beautifully for years. 
For some of us, there are all kinds of responsibilities that you've been able to duck because you're not well. Getting well means you can't shirk those responsibilities anymore. You're accountable. So here's the question. First question. Do you really want to get well? Do you really want to get well? Think about what it would mean for this man. The enormity of the changes that's coming into his life. 38 years. You realize this man hasn't had to work a job? He hasn't had to take responsibility for paying rent or buying food or clothing. He hasn't had to work at being part of a larger, very complex, difficult society. His family is related to him a certain way. His friends have related to him a certain way. The religious system is related to him a certain way. And things in some ways are working for him. But the moment that he says, yes, I want to get well, the changes that's going to happen around him. I'm just going to say this. Some of us are miserable, but we're stable. And we have control over our stable miserableness. So we like it. We know what's coming down the pipe. And the question that Jesus asked for these next weeks is, do you really want to get well? Do you really want to grow up? Do you really want to mature? And implicit in that question, my dear family, is that if you say yes, you're going to change and things around you are going to change. It will invite conflict. And some of us are so afraid of conflict that we would rather live with toxic dysfunction than be in conflict. Here's what else this means. Saying yes is also going to create a wave of chaos and uncertainty. Change will affect your work relationships, your marriage. Change will affect your your family relationships. Change will affect your finances and your job. I'm just going to say it. Some of you are in in jobs. You hate it. You hate it. Why are you in it? You're in it for money. You're in it for status. Why are you in it? You're in it because you're living someone else's life, not yours. Why are you in it? Because, Peter, this is what my parents wanted me to do. And I hate it. Okay, I'm going to go there. Some of you are involved in relationships, romantic relationships. And you know you want out. You know it's not good for you. Some of you are involved in relationships, and you've literally said to yourself before, these are things that I would never do. I'm a Christian. And you are now what? Do you really want to change? Oh, do you really want to get better? That's why Jesus asks. Because he understands the implications of you and me saying yes. Mara, he understands that you and I will have to do life differently. He understands it's frightening to say, yeah, Jesus, I want to change. Even if it means bringing uncertainty and chaos into my life because I want to get whole. Rather be Shoot this for some of us. I'm just going to say, you're a non-Christian. You've been coming to church for years. I know you because we've been in a relationship. Truth be told, some of us, it's no longer intellectual arguments that's hindering us from making that jump to give our lives to Jesus. It's no longer that. Truth of the matter is you don't want to give up control and surrender. And you're going, oh, this is comfortable. You stay right where you are, Jesus. This is comfortable. You know what I realized as a pastor? Some of you know, pain doesn't always necessitate change. 
I've seen people in tremendous pain and never move. Why? You have to go, yes, I desire to change. Let's go on. Encouragement, encouragement. I need to finish up here. Here's the encouragement if you're sitting there going, this is just really hard. I just rested the story. Listen, verse, verse 7, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes ahead of me. Do you want to get well? What does he do? Verse 8, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, the law for you to carry your mat. That's another whole story you don't have time for. Okay, so we're going to move on. Verse 11, but he replied, the, the, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. I'm going, you don't even know who he is? It's crying out loud. Verse 12, so they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Verse 13, the man who was healed had no idea who it was for jesus slipped away into the crowd that was there verse 14 later when jesus found him at the temple and said to him see you are well again stop sinning or something worse Come on. i'll come back to that a little bit later but good news first <laughs> do you realize and i just come in like this guy is no spiritual giant do you, do you get that do you get that sense he no spiritual job. He no big man of faith. You know what I mean? This guy not only blames other people when Jesus says, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? It's their fault. Do you want to get well? They don't. Secondly, he doesn't even know who Jesus is. He doesn't even know. When the religious ask him, leaders ask him, who healed you? His response, the man who made me well. He doesn't even know Jesus' identity. All he's able to do is admit that he's helpless. All he's able to do is admit what I'm doing isn't working. That's all Jesus needs. No amen, good news. Can we just be real? We're no spiritual giants. We're no I can faith move mountains. That's not us. We're more like this guy than. And yet, what does Jesus require and ask? Is that we would simply say, I need your help. What I'm doing isn't working. And Jesus says, That's all I need. I've been struggling with addiction for years. Jesus says, you need my help? What you're doing isn't working? See, here's the thing about biblical faith. Biblical faith doesn't have to start out with a lot of certainty. Biblical faith doesn't have to start out with a lot of knowledge. Biblical faith is simply stepping out in faith. To that word from Jesus. How about you? But people like me, that's encouraging. Because I don't have faith that can move mountains. I just got enough to go. I need you. What I'm doing and working. So can you help? Second question. It gets tougher, by the way. How will you respond to his intervention? 
See, in his grace and mercy, Jesus intervenes in this man's life. And Jesus comes into your life and my life. And he's just, he sees us lying there immature and stuck. And in his grace, Jesus will often intervene to awaken us to our sickness and immaturity. And get us to see our true condition. How does intervention come? This is another whole sermon. Hey, real quick, sometimes it comes through people. Our mentors, our friends. Sometimes it comes through pastors and community members. Sometimes it comes through an unhappy spouse. The intervention that came into my life four years back when I decided to take Sabbath seriously was my wife and I are sitting in bed and I'm minding my own business watching ESPN, whatever it was. And my wife turns to me and she says, you are the most self-absorbed person in the world. What? <laughs> I'm not even exaggerating. What? What? I'm a little self-absorbed, but in the world? <laughs> and yeah, I fought. We shouted, I yelled, and I threw a little temper tantrum like I might, you know. Like a little child, immature, emotionally. My self-absorption didn't come because I'm like, I'm all that. My self-absorption came because literally all day, every day, all I did was talk about my problems, my issues, my needs, and my, 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 my. And that was it. Boop. Three months of sabbatical. Seeing a therapist and a counselor for the first time in my life. Sometimes it comes through Circumstances. Being laid off from work. Sometimes it comes to circumstances like rejection letters, divorce, breakups, illness, accidents, sometimes addictions. And then, yeah, there are those, some of you, God may use this sermon series as the intervention. But I got to tell you, 28 years of being a pastor, I've noticed that God's intervention almost always comes through what people call hitting the wall. Or dark night of the soul. And what's amazing is, when we encounter that, our first response is what? Get me out of this as soon as possible. And not, what are you wanting to do? Here's the thing you got to know about Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. Which means, he knows that in order to be true peace, he's going to have to disrupt false peace. And I say that again. You and I walking around right now, everything's good. Over. The only way that the ultimate peacemaker comes, and by the way, this has all kinds of implications for justice issues and all, but another sermon in and of itself. Sorry, I've got some. When Jesus comes, he goes, I'm the ultimate peacemaker. You know what that means? That means I'm going to disrupt false peace that you have. You don't believe me? So you don't read passages like this in the Bible, do you? Look what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 51. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? To which you go, yes, peace on earth. We just celebrated Christmas. That's what he came. No, 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 not what you think. No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five and one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided against father and son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. I thought that was just cultural. <laughs> and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Some of you are like underlining, highlighting that verse and now my life makes sense. 
Jesus knows that in order for true peace, he has to disrupt false peace. And if you are not walking around unaware of the level of immaturity and healthiness, you better believe it in his love. He comes and says, I'm going to disrupt that. I'm going to confront that. But how will you respond? See it? Charles Spurgeon said this. How will you respond? And how can we say this? Move on. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. The gospel, which melts some persons to repentance, hardens others in their sin. When God's intervention comes, half of us will go, how dare you? And the other half of us will go, submission, surrender, humility. I got to talk about hardening our hearts. Give me a minute. Verse 14. Later, Jesus found them at the temple and said to them, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The implication of what Jesus is saying here is this. This guy might be living with some sin that could be contributing to the paralysis in his life. And Jesus, everybody look up here, please. Jesus comes to you and he says, you've had a touch from God. Don't go back there. You've had a touch from God. Don't go back there. Or things may get Last question. Last question and we're done. Am I willing to risk taking a step of faith? Am I willing to risk taking a step of faith? See, some of you are going to sit here and go, I don't want to do it. If I would ask you why, honestly, you would say, because I don't want to lose control. Peter, I've actually had this. What if they don't like the new me? They like the old me. I know what to expect. But what if they don't like the new me? Other people, many of us will go, what if I begin to share the underneath stuff and people freak out? So, I like my miserable stability because at least it's stable. So I will not move. I will not take that step of faith. I will rather stay stuck. Do you know the amazing news of the gospel says? The amazing news of the gospel, if that's you and me, and where we find our hope, back to verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Any Greek scholars here this morning? I know some of you didn't students. The word get up in the Greek is literally the word for what? I know there's like two NT scholars in the The word get up is literally the Greek word for, check this out, resurrection. Jesus is declaring over this man, I declare over to you, rise from the dead. Is that good news? He finds him in his paralysis and Jesus declares over him, the dead, immature, sick, stuck, paralyzed life of yours, I want to bring a resurrection out of that. And all he does is take a step of faith and all that does is it releases God's power to heal and to restore and to resurrect. It's amazing to me. God will not drag you in this journey towards maturity. You have to be willing. But Jesus says, if you're willing, my resurrection power 
could be released into your life. Is this good news? Ah, man. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that lies within us, Jesus says, that power could be man. No, 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 no. It will not be easy. It will not happen overnight. And you are going to bargain with God. Oh my gosh, you're going to bargain with God. You're going to say, I'll be at church every Sunday. Don't make me look underneath. I'll finally start tithing. Don't make me look underneath. I'll pray eight hours a day. Don't make me look underneath. I will do whatever you ask. And Jesus simply comes and says, none of that matters. You know why? Because you're still going to be stuck. Are you going to give me access to that? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. See, see, you can run up. My translation, blessed are those who are at the end of their rope. Blessed are those who are willing to admit that what they're doing isn't working. Blessed are those willing to take a step of faith rather than stay in their comfort zone so that the resurrection power of God can be released into his life. Listen to me, listen to me. Essentially, I've been preparing, I've been preparing you, church, for 13 years for the sermon series. Do you know why? Two things. You and I will go back to the gospel again and again. And otherwise, we have no shot at being secure enough to look at the underneath stuff. Did you hear me? Did you hear me? Unless you have the security that comes from knowing that Christianity is not my mad pursuit of God, but his mad pursuit of me. Unless I know that the gospel says that even though I've been messing up, if I'm willing to repent and turn around, his gracious loving arms is there waiting for me. The gospel that reminds me our security, our foundation, is not in our performance, but his performance. Not our righteousness, but his righteousness. Not our works, but his perfect works. The gospel that says we live and swim and breathe in the love and grace of God. Is this good news? And you're going to need that again and again and again. Otherwise, you got no chance at looking at that underneath stuff. No chance at giving him access to it. The gospel reminds us we don't have to be afraid. We simply want to be real. My prayer throughout this sermon series is that, you, that this will be a safe place. That our small groups will be a safe place. Where we go beyond tip of the iceberg spirituality to what's going on deep beneath. I'm going to put this prayer up here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, can you put the prayer up there? I'm going to ask you guys to pray this prayer with me right now. Just say it right now. I almost never do this, but even if you don't mean it, just say it. (laughs) I know. You're like, that came out of your mouth? Yeah, it came out of my mouth. I want you to pray this prayer with me in all seriousness because this is the prayer that's going to anchor us. Here we go. Ready? God, I ask that you would not simply heal the symptoms of what is not right in my life, but that you would surgically remove all that is in me that does not belong to me. And then secondly, gospel community. (laughs) If you are dropping in out here and there on Sundays, you don't want to be accountable to anybody, don't let anybody know what's going on in your life, you are duck soup. You are dead meat for self-deception. Do you know why? 
Because the very essence of self-deception is that you need someone else who is not what? You, the self, to diagnose what's going on. If you're sitting there going, oh, my wife knows me, not good enough. If you're sitting there going, well, so-and-so knows me. Really? Do they really know you? Do they really know what's going on beneath the iceberg? Community is that place where you're not just going to have to listen to the sermon, but process and talk through and learn and share and pray and mourn and grieve and rejoice. (sighs) Doug, are you ready? You guys ready for this journey? Do you realize how much courage it's going to require? <sighs> so starting this week, so next Sunday, I'm going to talk about self-deception. And we're going to launch what unhealthy spirituality looks like. Then each week, we're going to look at topics like knowing yourself that you may know God going back in order to go forward. There's lots, lots, lots of content around Sabbath, silence, solitude, contemplative spirituality, recognizing our limits, being able to mourn and grieve well, all of that good stuff. But boy, we begin the journey today. Pray with me. simply heal the symptoms of what is not right in my life but that you would surgically remove all that is in me that does not belong to you God I ask that you would not simply heal the fact that I have addictions just the fact that I continue to get in relationships that are harmful, the fact that I continue to look to different things to satisfy, the fact that I am a workaholic, the fact that I have deep anger issues, the fact that I can't ever forgive people, the fact that I look to other people's validation and approval, the fact that I've hidden secrets, the hurt and the abuses in the past, the fact that I struggle. I ask that you would not simply heal those symptoms, but that you would look deep within. And that you, by the power of your spirit, remove all that is in me that does not belong. scared I am right there with you my brother my sister but can we go to the one who encourages us that he's on the other side he got you he's got me
quick, church, can you do this for me before I pray and invite our, 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 our ushers to come forward? Right where you are, can you just gently put your hand on the person sitting to your right or to your left? Just on your shoulder. You don't need to, if you don't know them, you don't need to know them. Just put their shoulder. I Spend the next few moments praying for that neighbor, that brother, that sister. You could pray out loud so they could hear you. Come on, come on. Let's fill this, this sanctuary with the prayers of God's people. Come on, just, just lift them up as the Spirit leads. Pray for courage. Yeah, pray for healing. Pray for willingness to give accessibility. Pray for faith. Yeah, yeah, pray for insight. Yeah, pray for courage. Pray, pray God would speak. Pray that God would speak and that they would listen. Pray, church, come on now, pray. Fill this room with prayers of God's people. Yes, yes. We do, we do, we do, we do, we do. Yes, yes. Yes, 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 Jesus. Yes, yes, Jesus. Yes, yes, Jesus. Yes, 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 Jesus, that you would heal. Yes, 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 Jesus, that you would carefully we do this every Sunday but for the next eight weeks this is going to be so critical right after the service is over as all of us venture out eventually to the fellowship hall the prayer team will be right behind me right behind me where the cross is an open space and they will be there ready to pray with anybody and for anybody that needs prayer we're going to do that every single week so come on up go back there we have some privacy Ushers, please come forward. Pray with me, church. Father, we, we lift up and consecrate next eight, nine weeks or so of this journey to you. How amazing is it that you desire transformation in the innermost parts of who we are. Our prayer is that we, as David prayed, would pray, Search me, O God, and know me. Search me, O God, and know me. Trusting then the one who knit us in our mother's womb and knows us intimately would be right there along with us on this journey. Jesus, we dedicate and solemnly surrender our lives, our hearts, our bodies, our minds, our will to you. We are sick of being sick. Tired of being tired. We need your help. And as we give our tithes and our offering, pray that you would 
use the gifts that you've rightly given to us and we give rightly to you to expand your kingdom. We do not give to new community. We give through new community advance your kingdom work here to the ends of the world. We give joyfully, gratefully to the work of your kingdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.